Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Clerical Conversations on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. We are doing this special edition for our listeners because it is, in the secular sense, a a rather momentous day, a day that I would say caught both His Excellency and myself by by surprise, if, if I may say so, Your Excellency. Oh, absolutely. So before I get into today's discussion, which will be to discuss the just the reaction to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States as the 45th, the, the president who will be inaugurated next year in 2017, I think I just wanted to revisit last night with you, Your Excellency. You were probably up late watching the returns. At what point did you think maybe this could turn? And what was the series of events in your mind uh, as you realized this? Well, the 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 whole day was was pretty much a depressing day, thinking that the Clinton woman would become the president of the United States, and since she is a radical liberal and leftist, probable communist, socialist, and many other unpleasant things, uh, the idea of her vindictive approach and and radical approach to the imposition of all of that was depressing you know it's a whole new era uh, uh, of progress in the in the reign of antichrist and uh so but you know you held out that little hope that maybe maybe something would go wrong for her <laughs> so of course i uh, w- the polls started to close at 7 p.m. in florida which was fairly early for a big state and uh so i started watching the polls and uh at first uh, she was leading in florida and I thought, oh no! If he loses Florida, he's cooked. And uh, so, you know, uh, so you put that aside for a while, then went back to it, maybe an hour later, and he was starting to lead in Florida. I thought, gee, that's interesting. And so this went on <laughs> for the rest of the night, back and forth, looking at various states. So the the uh, I was watching those battleground states because you knew which ones he was going to take. But the battleground states, which were Florida principally, Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, uh, North Carolina, and Virginia. And I think the first indication of trouble for her was Ohio. That Ohio was showing very strong uh, results for Trump. Uh, he and he, he really trounced her in Ohio. I think it was fifty-six to forty-five or fifty-five to forty-five, something like that. Uh, it was very strong. Uh, of all of his victories, Ohio was probably the strongest. Uh, and uh, I would, I had a, a, a pre-intonation of that uh, when I, because I drove up on Saturday previous uh, after seeing Father Chicada in in Cincinnati. I drove up seventy-five. And I noticed all of these Trump signs going up 75 toward Detroit, and not a single Hillary sign. I saw flags, big, big flags for Trump, and no Hillary signs. You know, I, it's hard to believe that this state is going to go for Hillary. Uh, and then I, I drove up from Toledo to, to Detroit, and no Hillary signs, just Trump signs. Hmm. I think I saw one Hillary sign in the Detroit area, one. And so, uh, 
you know, so that was encouraging. Then the next day, Sunday, the 6th, November 6th, uh, uh, I was there with Father Saavedra, and Donald Trump was supposed to speak in Sterling Heights, which is the next town from our church in Fraser, Michigan, just, you know, 10 minutes away. So I said, let's let's drive by and have a look. He was supposed to talk at 6. We got there about quarter to 4, and there was a major traffic jam. Major, major traffic jam. Just getting close to where he was going to talk, and the parking lot was already totally filled up. And and you, all of these people were converging on him. And that was Macomb County, which was a critical county for him. And you know, so you got the impression that you know you said to yourself, you know, is he going to lose the state when there's so much uh, enthusiasm for him? And and so you had a, a some indication that the polls were wrong, uh, and that things might go the right way. Uh, so that that's the way I felt. But you know, the polls are generally correct, uh, and they have been correct in the past in most cases. And you know, you tend to believe them, and and so you were prepared for the worst. Waking up on Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday morning, finding out that Hillary was the president. So it was. Uh, so anyway, so that night I was watching all of the poll, the polling. You know, it was the actual election night. I was watching all of the polling and doing the math. I had a calculator how far ahead he was in certain states. All of those, those states. So the first one that gave indication was Ohio, and then uh, then North Carolina. <laughs> Uh, collapsed in favor of him, and was, that she lost North Carolina. And I thought, wow, that's you know, that's something that she lost that state because she was really campaigning hard for North Carolina. But when Florida caved in, <laughs> uh, that's when I figured I, I texted somebody in California. She's cooked, um, and um, when Florida went for her, uh, barely, but went. Uh, excuse me, for him. But barely, I mean, by a close margin, uh, I th- thought that's the end. He's finished. If she, so if you, has, as soon as you saw Florida, that's when you knew. Yes, well, that's when I knew that he was going to win. And uh, I can, uh, yes, well, you know, he he had won three battleground states, and that was such a trend. I, I thought, oh, he, she is uh, finished now, and. Sure enough, uh, I mean, uh, then, you know, I watched the whole night until midnight, apparent, uh, approximately. And I looked at the New York Times uh, website, and they gave him a 95% likelihood of being elected. <laughs> you know, they hate him. Right. <laughs> they just detest him. And I thought, if they're saying 95%, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so... So I did. I went to bed, and uh, but for some reason or other, I got up at three a.m. The cat often wakes me up, and so I look at the the websites, and and uh, sure enough, uh, he has now taken Pennsylvania, and he was leading in Michigan, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, she is really, really cooked now, and he was t- also leading in Arizona, which he still is, uh, and. Uh, so that was the, I thought, oh, this, you know, and but the real clincher was Wisconsin. When Wisconsin fell, I, that has been, you know, just Democratic territory for decades upon decades since I think since 1984. 
that in Minnesota always went, and, and Minnesota was iffy for her. I mean, it, it took a while to to um, he, you know he had a he was very close to her in Minnesota. It finally went to her, but so uh, you know it was a, a an enlightening. An encouraging process. The you know watching the election. It was certainly the most uh, exciting election that I had ever watched in my life. Uh, you know, you, you it was you know I remember doing Bush back in two thousand and and some of the others where where there was some sort of real race going on. And uh, uh, I remember when Florida was was given over to Gore and then they took it away from him because of the the problem with the polling in uh, South Florida. That was 2000. That was the year 2000. Mm. Uh, so, um, uh, but this was certainly, uh, I, uh, BBC said it was the, the most historic election in American history, and I would, I would agree with that. I was I was telling Matt Gaskin today that if we could somehow capture all the tears of the liberals, we could single-handedly end the drought in California. <laughs> yes. It's a little salty, but it would do still. <laughs> yes. Did you see some of the faces? Uh, I don't know if you looked at, at I I did, I did. It, it was hard not to in. engage in a little, a little schadenfreude, Your, your Excellency. <laughs> they came in with such euphoria because she was anointed by the polls. Yes. And that changed into such severe depression as state after state that she, the battleground states were were going in uh, against her one after the other. Uh I mean they I never saw so many sad faces in my whole life. <laughs> right. And then Podesta told them to all go home and that's when that's when I think a lot of us knew he knew something. He was sending them all home and uh, and that was the end of it. So Yes. Here, here we are, Your Excellency. It is the dawn of a strange new universe, uh, Brexit, um, uh, then Trump. Is it possible that Marine Le Pen could be elected in France? I do. I think that the, uh, you know, uh, uh, the continent will catch the, the fever and uh, will, will turn to the right. I would uh, highly suspect that in any case. Um, and... Um, uh, so I hope so. Uh, so uh, I uh, and also I think Merkel is finished. I think there's a strong anti-refugee feeling and anti-immigration feeling uh, that is growing in Europe. Uh, so I think sh she's finished, and I think Hollande is finished. Uh, uh, so uh, you know, American politics has a very strong influence on the rest of the world, uh, as we mm. know. I mean, you can see from the reactions and all. People look at it. With with great uh, intensity, and uh, so I think uh, yes, it will have an effect in Europe. I hope so. Uh, so, well, so some people say, you know, why why is His Excellency, you know, okay with this? You know, this is a horrible man. And one of the things you've mentioned is it's important to distinguish Trump's persona from his political agenda. Yes, uh, I'm not pleased at all with his persona. In other words, Trump as a person. Uh, he has, he's a showbiz man, he's a, a tycoon, uh, he treats women as sex objects, uh, that, that's clear from his, his whole history with women and, you know, the, the beauty shows and all of that, and, and also, you know, his, these strange interactions that he has with these beauty stars and, and, uh, you know, female uh, media people and, and saying things to them that are off color and improper, uh, 
you know, he has a, a thing about women that, that is very degrading uh, to them. And, and, uh, and he's used to being around uh, showbiz women. You know, everyone was so scandalized by those comments which he had made on the hot microphone that, you know, he mm-hmm. didn't know was there. But, you know, uh, and I think they were objectively very scandalous, but I would uh, ask, you know, what kind of women are these that are hanging around in these places? Uh, they probably have skirts up to the top of their thighs. They probably have bare backs and, and plunging necklines and, and tight skirts and bleach blondes. And, and you know, are, are these, you know, very wholesome young women uh, that, that uh, would never think about uh, doing anything impure with a man? Mm. I tend to doubt it. I, I think that they are, they are call girls and chorus girls and uh, are used to that sort of thing and may even enjoy it. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, also I thought at the time how hypocritical for a population that is addicted to filthy television, filthy movies, filthy everything else, that uh, talks filth just as badly as he does, uh, that they should be gasping for breath for the scandal of hearing him speak in such a way when probably most of those men speak in exactly the same way about women. You know, and and the women sometimes are worse than the men. Uh, you know about what's on their minds about impurity, etc. So, you know, I thought it was hypocritical. I mean, this country is so addicted to to sexual immorality. It's just addicted. It's it's uh, it's like a drug addiction that they should be scandalized by that. But that none of that, none of those circumstances justifies what he said, and also his attitude toward women and his womanizing and all of the other stuff. None of it justifies it at all. It, it's it's a deplorable thing, and and uh, but the on the other hand, uh, his political agenda, at least what he has been saying. Let's see what he does. But what he has been saying is generally very good, with a few notable exceptions. Uh, it is the this basic conservative line, with the big exception of of the social issues. And that's a real big exception because it's the most important of them. But, you know, as far as the operation of the country, foreign policy, tax policy, uh, immigration, all of the other many things that, that he has pledged to do are all really conservative agenda and very conservative agenda. Building up the military, uh, you know, a foreign policy that is not interventionist, uh, repudiating the neocon idea of the uh, America as 911 for the rest of the world, you know, to, to keep the peace. And um, the, um, you know, all of that sounds very good. Let's see what he does. Uh, getting rid of Obamacare and, and many other things. So, you know, he, he does tout that. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if, if he's uh, sincere and he follows through on those things, it's cause for joy. Uh, he also will nominate probably three justices to the Supreme Court in the four years that he's in. And, and you know, we will see whom he nominates. Uh, actions speak louder than words and talk is cheap. We'll see who he, whom uh, he nominates, but, um, uh, you know, if he is true to, to form, he might nominate some people that will be on there for 30 years, perhaps, 
who will keep the Supreme Court in, in better condition than what it is now. So th- those are all considerations. And, and it is true that the social issues are really in the hands of the Supreme Court more than of politicians. I mean, all of those social issues that we are also irritated about, like abortion, like uh, sodomitic marriages and various other things, uh, are really in, in the hands of the Supreme Court. Uh, well, that, that's only because we've allowed it to be that way. You're, see, the, the Congress could pass a law that returns all of those issues to the states and out of the hands of the Supreme Court, but nobody wants to stand up to those guys. That's true. That's true. And that would be... Uh, because there's nothing in this Constitution that gives the Supreme Court the right to interpret the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It's not there. I looked. <laughs> <laughs> well, some might, some might say, Your Excellency, you know... Bishop Sanborn is never going to advocate for revolution. He's not going to say a Catholic should be engaged in revolution. But, you know, in some ways, everyone has characterized Donald Trump as the guy who's going to blow everything up. How does a Catholic look at that and reconcile that with the dim view that Catholics normally take about revolution? Well, if by revolution you mean storming the White House and throwing rocks at it and setting on fire, yes, the Catholic Church absolutely abhors that and condemns it. If by revolution you mean a really a counter-revolution, because I would call it that, that is turning things back toward the way they should be, by, mean, by legitimate means, that is the ballot box, then that's absolutely in accordance with Catholic principles. And that is what has happened. There's been, a, I would call it a counter-revolution that has taken place among the little people, the hard-working blue-collar people, uh, farmers, uh, miners, uh, other auto workers, uh, people who work hard for a living and who are really suffering economically and in various other ways, uh, um, they are the ones that that really voted him in. Uh, And and, uh, so, you know, they are the the leaders of the counter-revolution. But it's that's that's what St. Thomas Aquinas says. If you have a tyrant, uh, one of the ways to get rid of him is by your constitution. And if you can vote him out, uh, I'm paraphrasing him. He said it quite differently. But if you can get rid of him by constitutional means, that's fine. It's the way you get rid of tyrants. And, And I think that's the idea is that is that finally people are so fed up, those people, are so fed up that they they took it out uh, on the establishment really badly, <laughs> you know, and in an organized manner. If you see, the New York Times had a, a map of where most of his support came from, and it comes from the it starts uh, starts in Pennsylvania and is like uh, there's a big dip down to the south and comes up through maybe uh, Wisconsin. All of that is pointing red. Now, as they use these arrows to show the shift in in ideas and voting uh, voting um, records, etc. Arrows pointing right to the in red, uh, and th- it was really that middle America, what you call the Midwest and the South, including Florida. Florida had a, a big shift uh, in voting record. Uh, th- that's what elected him. Um, the uh, I mean th- those western red states were predictable, but the that middle America, industrial America, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, West Virginia, 
they they went heavily for him, and you know that's sort of the heartland of American industry, and uh, I think it's very significant. They they really led the counter revolution. They they usually went with the Democrats, and uh, and and Florida went Democratic I think twice in the past uh, two elections. So um, there's definitely been a shift, and what I I noticed the same thing as with Brexit. When I was staying up late to watch Brexit too, because <laughs> I uh, and I of course you expect London to go bad you know, on Brexit, and mm-hmm. sure enough it did. But then I noticed that all of these uh, counties to the the north and the, practically the rest of England was showing up uh, in the color against Brexit. And the phenomenon was that the rural parts of England and the smaller cities of England overcame the central one-worldism of London. And I thought, that is very unusual, and it hardly ever happens. And, and the same is true here, the, because the, the rural areas have always been conservative, but they've never been able to overcome the big cities. And and this happened. They overcame the big cities. Pennsylvania overcame the Philadelphia area and even the Pittsburgh area. Uh, Ohio overcame Cleveland area, which was always, you know, was went for her this time. Um, um, Michigan overcame Detroit. Uh, and uh, Wisconsin overcame its liberal areas, Milwaukee and Madison. I noticed that even in those states that went for him, the capitals always went for her. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's loaded with liberal politicians. Uh, all of the capitals went for her, I think with the exception of one, in those states that, that finally went over to him. Uh, and all of the areas that contain universities, like U of M and, and uh, Penn State, as examples, also went blue. <laughs> Uh, but the the phenomenon was and very interesting is that this blue collar, hardworking, uh, lower class America overcame both the educated, super rich, uh, you know, university types of the Northeast and the left coast, and that's a very powerful thing. That 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 center of the United States and the Midwest can overcome those tremendous voting blocks uh, in the Northeast and in, in California and the rest of the, the left coast. Uh, and uh, I, I thought that was very significant. And I think it showed that people have had it with that tired old, decades-old establishment that has led this country in downhill for 30 years or better. I would say since... Since the second administration of Reagan, I would say 1985, 86, around there, you know, 80, uh, 85, I think, was a second term of Reagan, it has been downhill, and it started to really turn downhill with George H.W. Bush, who mentioned the New World Order and the globalism uh, that we live in today, which, and, and it has really taken a nosedive. Since then, and, and including George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, his his uh, his presidency was a disaster in so many ways. And um, and then, of course, the Clintons in the 90s, we we won't even speak about. 
uh, and uh, and then Obama again is somebody that is unspeakable. So it, they they have finally rejected all of that, and uh, were, you know you could see the enthusiasm in those in those Trump rallies. There was something. It, it's more than just an election, uh, as many pointed out. It's a movement. It, it it's a grassroots anger about what's going on with this country, and I I thought it was very significant. Well, there's a lot of different policies, and, and you've got a busy schedule, York and C, so I don't want to delve into all of them. I just want to pick three specifically, again, tie them back to a Catholic worldview, and then I want to finish by asking you what percent chance you ha- you give that he gets to execute on these three specific ones. So Before he gets executed, is that what you mean? Uh, but, but yes, possibly. <laughs> Can he execute before he gets executed? <laughs> right. uh, so I want to talk about education foreign policy, non-intervention, and trade. So if you could just comment on those three issues. Well, education, I, I heard him say, because I followed some of his, his talks, uh, he said that he's going to get rid of Common Core. Uh, most, uh, most Catholic lay people would know what Common Core is. It's that horrid, uh, federally imposed a system of teaching mathematics and other courses which are which just confuse the children uh, they were already dumbed down by by modern education since the time of Dewey uh, and and since the 1960s and 70s education has become a, just a joke in this country but this common core just flattens it you know it's just a flat line you know no brain waves at all and and uh, so uh, so he's promised to do that, and he said, return education to the local areas, which is really where it belongs. I mean, even, you know, I would say that, it, of course, the Catholic view is education belongs to the parents, and the parents have the absolute right to educate the, their children as they will, uh, as long as they educate them. You know, I mean, they have that obligation. But as they will, I mean, the state is there only to help just as even the church is there only to help. I mean, for example, we don't insist that people put their children in our Catholic schools. Uh, they can homeschool if they want. Uh, that choice was never, uh, uh, you know, back before the council, the bishops insisted that you put your children in Catholic school because the choice was either Catholic school or, uh, or the public school. So in that choice, yes, absolutely, you have to put them in the Catholic school. But now there's the homeschool possibility, and he also mentioned that, that he would protect the right to homeschool. Parents can teach their children at home. Uh, you know, there's nothing sacrosanct about a school. There's, there's no reason to say you must send your children to school, even a Catholic school. Uh, the church is there to help you with your obligation. So, you know, his rhetoric is great. Uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. And, and, but, you know, let's see how he does. Before I'm going to get too excited, I want to see how he does. Uh, so, well, I mean, uh, you've had to deal with, I was in, I was at the church in Arizona recently, Your Excellency, on some personal business. And uh, I, I was talking to Father Palma and there's some challenge with the school certification and the state of Arizona. And I thought you must already be dealing with some kind of nonsense from the state just to operate as a regular Catholic school. Well, I really can't comment on that because that's really Father Selway's domain. I, I don't know anything about it. So, do you, do you run uh, into anything like that in Florida? No, not yet. Florida is uh, quite good about it. They they have a policy of 
saying if you want to give a diploma that is recognized by the state, then you must comply with a lot of state regulations. If you are not interested in doing that, uh, then you don't have to comply, and essentially we won't bother you except for maybe health things. We might send around a, you know, a health representative. But, you know, there's some paperwork that you have to file, but they're, they're pretty good in Florida. But each state is different, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, yes, I don't know, you know what the problem is in Arizona. But, uh, and, you know, they might make changes in, in, their, in their policies, too, as time goes on. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if there's uh, you know, more and more stringent uh, requirements in order to eliminate small private schools. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Hmm. So the next topic, Your Excellency, was on foreign policy. Yes, again, he is quite explicit about non-interventionism. He said that the United States should not go to war uh, anywhere except where the interests of the United States are concerned and the security of the United States is concerned and that our attitude will be America first uh, in that regard. And I, that, that's completely true and right. I mean, uh, think of the uh, men that died and were maimed in the second Iraq war that started in 2003, when they hear, well, obviously the dead can't hear it, but the maimed people sitting in wheelchairs and, and invalids now, uh, those, those horrid politicians saying, well, it was a mistake. The 2003 war was a mistake. And just think about that. You know, the friends that you may have had that were killed and, and you've got your, your legs shot off or something, well, it was a mistake. And they say this in such a cavalier manner. That's a disaster that it was a mistake. And Trump, to his credit, opposed that war in 2003, that Bush war in 2003, that overcame Saddam and which has led to chaos in that country ever since, just chaos. And we are responsible for that chaos, directly responsible for that chaos. Uh, and we were warned by other countries not to do it, and we did it anyway because of the hubris of the Bushes uh, and the one-worldism of the Bushes, who are just liberals dressed like Republicans. That's all they are. I mean, George H.W. voted for the Clinton woman, and uh, George W. did not – he said he didn't vote either for Clinton or for Trump. So, he, you know, he wrote in, you know uh, – you know, some sort of a gorilla or something like that. And, and I don't know what he did, but he, he didn't vote for either, he said. Uh, so, I mean, the Bushes were always liberals, and, and they, they put on a, a conservative costume in order to pass for Republicans. And so people considered them re, you know, conservatives, and they were not at all. They were, they were very one-worldy people. Uh, and they're tight with the Clintons and everything. So then, you know, of course, Obama and the whole Democratic idea and Hillary are, they were, you know, continuing the one world idea and the interventionism of the United States in any kind of hot spot. We saw that with the Clintons, you know, with Kosovo and, you know, bombing Belgrade and various other interventions. It used to be, like under Reagan, we intervened in cases where communists were taking over parts of South America or the Caribbean. Remember Grenada, and he was also helping the uh, Contras in Nicaragua. But there was a, still that, that idea of containment of communism, uh, and, uh, which was the old 
way, the old... Uh, but that really went by the boards when you're, when you're opening up trade with China. When they made China the, the uh, most favored... I uh, gave China most favored nation status. I mean, here, these people are, are communists. Uh, they oppress their people. Uh, they don't let them have babies and, and you know, this oppressive, horrid regime. And they are given most favored nation status. If you recall, we would not even recognize the Chinese communist regime until Nixon went over there. It wasn't even diplomatic recognition. And you couldn't get anything from China. They were cut off just like Cuba. That was the, the old U.S. foreign policy. And if we had pursued that, China today would look like Cuba does. It wouldn't be this economic superpower that it is, and nor would it be able to purchase a military uh, ability as it can. Uh, it, it, it would just be a, a, a collapsed socialistic economy, just like Eastern Europe and Russia became, uh, and uh, you know, making shoes for each other. And as Chesterton says, you don't have an economy when you're washing each other's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know the, the maybe it was Belloc. Belloc who said that. Belloc, you don't have an economy if you're washing each other's clothes, and and uh, yeah, it just would have been a, a an economically starved place, and and uh, you know that's what communism deserves to be, uh, and those communist governments. The same with Vietnam. Imagine you know if you lost your life or, or you, you lost your legs or something in Vietnam. Now they're making stuff for us. As a matter of fact, I think the the earphones that I recently got were made in Vietnam. Mm. I mean, these are communists. Uh, <laughs> and, and people, how many soldiers? Was it 50,000 or something? Gave their lives in Vietnam. Got shot up in Vietnam to oppose these communists. And now we are working with them as if they're... And now you, have commu- now you have communist headphones, Your Excellency. I, yeah, I do. You know. <laughs> I, I'm probably using a communist uh, phone, iPhone. <laughs> Made in China, and you know, and designed by communists in California. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you can hardly buy underwear that isn't made by communists. Sure. And that that just uh, these these people working in those factories are are you know a little different from slaves. They are working in very very bad conditions. They, those countries do not have all of the laws that we have to protect the worker. And, you know, the, the buildings collapse on them and various other hard things happen to them. Uh, they are overworked. Uh, people commit suicide because they're, they're actually uh, housed and fed in the same building as the factory is. And it's, it's just like an anthill. And they get so depressed they commit suicide. And, you know, this is the kind of world that we are supporting. And, and uh, so I think that getting back to Trump, that uh, his, and moving on, I guess, to trade, which is the third thing you're talking about, uh, you know, he wants to bring back industry to this country and put high tariffs on things coming into this country, which is a very, very good idea. Uh, It will uh, bring back uh, industry to this country, which, you know, might curtail our ability to buy certain things, uh, but it will make this country much more secure and financially better off. Uh, secure because, you know, you have to have a, a big industrial base in order to carry on a war. 
the reason we succeeded so much in World War II was because we were an enormous industrial country. Uh, we had a tremendous industry in this country, and uh, and that's what Churchill said. That when when the United States entered the war, he says, "Now we will win." Her, meaning the, our country, her industrial strength will will win us the war. And he was right. You know, the production of these planes is tremendous production production of planes and tanks and and the you know the American tank was technically inferior to the German tank, but there were ten of them for every German tank. Mm. So you know the the very technologically superior German tank was no good when you have ten mediocre tanks attacking it. <laughs> right, sheer firepower. Yes, you know it, it's it's the elephant and the ants. I mean the. Uh, the you know the 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 German technology was the elephant, but when you're and the elephant is overrun by all of these ants, it succumbs, falls down, and is eaten. Hmm. Uh, and you know you need to have an industry that is capable of producing war material in any any kind of war. And if it's all shipped off to China and Vietnam and all of these other places, Mexico, you know if it's all outlying. In that, in that case, it, it's it's very dangerous. And who benefits from that? But the huge corporations that can do those very things, that can ship out all of their stuff, like Boeing and Ford and all of that. And who benefits? Is it the? It's the the rich executives who benefit from it. It's the profits of the company. Uh, it's not the little people in the company that benefit from that. It is not the American consumer that benefits from it. It's the fact that they can can do these things in virtual slave labor camps and bring them into the United States and sell them at U.S. prices. So I I think that that Trump is absolutely right on that, and it's something long overdue uh, to to force. Uh, he said he would put a 35 percent tax on any vehicle made in Mexico coming into this country. No, I think it's the the only way that you can. Talk to, talk to these com- companies. They understand bottom line, and and when you put tariffs on there, it changes everything. It does. It does. I think he's right to penalize them for that because it's contrary to national security and the national interests. Well, you meant you mentioned execution, uh, Your Excellency, and you also noted that that Reagan had a different attitude. Um, but I guess I'm looking at it. You know, what happens when people get attacked? Uh, Pius the Ninth had to flee, and he had a change of heart. Reagan gets shot. He had a change of heart, um, and you think you know potentially Trump could could could. I I think it wouldn't be unfair to say he could be in some kind of danger. What chance do you have? What what chance do you give that he's able to do even one tenth of what he would like to do? And would you consider that a success? Yes, I, I, a little bit more than one tenth, maybe, but. It really depends on him. It, you know, if he's going to compromise with the Republican establishment, who are basically liberals, then he's useless. Then he's just another, you know, establishment. And I, I saw, you know, on the BBC today some of his probable picks for cabinet, and I was not very happy. For example, picking Newt Gingrich for Secretary of State. Hmm. I mean, he's like Mister. That, that guy's a warmonger. <laughs> Yes, he he's just Mr. Neocon liberal Republican. You know, if he picks him, I think we're in big trouble. I, I think mm. that says a lot. And, uh, to me, uh, the people that you pick around you 
says a lot about uh, who you are and what your agenda is. The, the people that you pick to, to carry out your agenda is very, very significant. Uh, he had some others there that I wasn't really happy with, and I just can't remember who they are right now. But, um, you know, time will tell. But, I mean, Newt Gingrich, I mean, didn't, wasn't he involved in some ethics thing? Uh, he had to resign because of an well, ethics yeah, not charge. O- not only that, when his wife was, I think, in the hospital with cancer or something, he took up with, with another woman. Oh yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely not uh, the sort of person. But again, this goes back to what you said originally. Uh, while we don't condone such behavior, if, if someone can govern well, that that is something that we can accept. But uh, it's not even clear that this man can govern well. So yes, uh, um, and examples uh, of debauched people who govern well uh, are Louis the Fourteenth, uh, who was you know, a womanizer, a terrible womanizer, but who brought France to great heights of interior organization and international prestige and wealth. Uh, and uh, the Romanovs. I mean, if you read the... I recently read a whole book on the Romanovs from the early 1600s right up to the to the World War One, And, I mean, with the exception of Nicholas II, they were the most, most debauched people <laughs> you could even... I mean, it, it it got so dirty at at certain points that I had to. I was because I was listening to it on on you know a CD. I had to turn it down. I did, it was just too dirty to listen to. Uh, mm. And the, the author was not you know this was not a, like a, uh, a very serious author. And and but you know he was just describing what these people do. Uh, but they built up the Rome, Russian Empire enormously, the Romanovs in those three hundred years. And and you know Russia became a major European and even world power under the Romanovs, mm. and uh, so you know from the point of view of furthering, uh, and then there was uh, you know, well part of them was Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, um, and another one. I mean I would never defend this man, but many people consider him a great president, and that was Roosevelt. Yeah, you know, oh, the, um, um, Franklin Roosevelt, he's like a political god. You know, mm. uh, uh, and he was Mr. Womanizer, too. I mean, he died in, I think it was Hot Springs, Georgia, with his mistress. I don't know if you know that. No, no, I didn't. But I was going to say, uh, his wife was a womanizer, too, uh, because uh, she was a uh, homosexual. And that I was, didn't uh, know that. Uh, yes. She was also a communist. Those two go to go to go together, Your Excellency. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, so you know, but uh, even politically, you could say that uh, although his politics was dreadful, I think it was the worst thing that ever happened to this country. Uh, it, his politics were dreadful. Nevertheless, he was an astute politician. And he he managed to govern, you know, in his way, very, very astutely and efficaciously. So I'm just pointing those things out that that personal debauchery really doesn't affect one way or the other your 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 ability to govern. And vice versa, you could be lily pure, you could be a saint, but a horrible ruler because you have no practical sense, no political sense, and. Uh, you know, uh, I would say that you, uh, Ben Carson would be a good example of that. I mean, he, he was a you know, really good man, or he seemed to be anyway. And But I don't think he was meant to govern. 
<laughs> and I think that's why he eventually evaporated. Uh, you know, when he opened his mouth, you, you know, he seemed to be so abstract and, and you know, in another world uh, that, uh, you know, he just didn't seem to be the type of person that could govern. I mean, he might advise somebody who's governing, but he didn't seem to be somebody who could govern. So, uh, and, you know, that's the, that's the church who uses that principle in the choice of bishops. The uh, sanctity, personal sanctity, is not the first consideration in choice of bishops, but the ability to govern the diocese. Because you could get some monks or some, you know, who are soaring in sanctity, but they are unable to govern a diocese, be administrators, rulers. See, so uh, you know you you shouldn't confuse those two things. Ideally, you know they should be together. That is good morals and and good governance. But often they're not together, and and often power corrupts and and and. Uh, ambition corrupts, and is, you know, so they they are often uh, you know often debauched people seek power, but many times they make good rulers. So, do you think that uh, he will make it, Your Excellency? And do you think he's going to be able to accomplish any of this? Well, I think by nature he's a go-getter and a doer. I think he's no nonsense. You know, I think he will tell people off. If they oppose him, uh, I think that's his nature to do that. I think that's why he's a billionaire and, and uh, that he will not are hesitate. You, you're, you're, so are you describing Trump or are you describing people from Queens? <laughs> well, you know, we're almost contemporaries. I'm 66. He's 70. And we grew up maybe five miles apart. He's Donald J. and I'm Donald J. <laughs> that, that was a, a fad name at the time. You can always tell when people are born with their fad names. That was a fad name at the time. So, uh, so we're both Donalds, and, and uh, we both grew up, you know, almost contemporary. He's contemporary with my brothers. And my mm. brother, one brother was born in 1947, so he's, he's very close to, to that. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I know what he's from. He's typical New York. I mean, they, I know the New York personality, aggressive, brash, uh, very efficacious, get it done, get out of my way. Uh, that's New York, and I grew up in that. And I don't know if it has perhaps <laughs> maybe people are not surprised to hear that. <laughs> but uh, uh, the uh, so you know if he brings that in. I think it will be refreshing. I think he'll be a strong ruler, and, and uh, he will deal with the Congress in an aggressive manner, which would be good. Uh, but you know, you don't know when those pressures come to bear from that very strong establishment, uh, which has ruined this country. When they come to bear on him, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, you know, and, and uh, if things are imposed upon him. Uh, uh, and I, I fear that if he bucks them too much, uh, they might knock him off. Hmm. Well, uh, on that cheery note, Your Excellency, we'll end our episode today. We want to remind our, our listeners that Clerical Conversations is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. And if you have any questions for His Excellency about anything that we talked about in today's episode, please email questions with an S 
at truerestoration.org. Your Excellency, uh, there's a lot to cover on Francis Watch coming up, so I won't ask you what's going on in the seminary until that episode. Uh, thanks so much for your time, and uh, we look forward to uh, catching up with you then. All right, thank you. Thank you.